become almost too predictable. You're watching your favorite show, and it's the last episode of the season, and just as things are really starting to get interesting, those three dreaded words appear on the screen, to be continued. You know, sequels have become so common, they are passe. I mean, how many Transformer, Terminator, and Rocky movies do we need? More and more, huh? I'm sure they'll be coming out, too. And the first Sharknado was bad enough. But now there's a Sharknado 2 and 3, and if you don't have college students at home and are fortunate enough to not know what Sharknado movies are, they're just what they sound like, a bunch of sharks flying around in tornadoes eating people. Hollywood loves sequels. There are, of course, some exceptions. But did you know that one of the books in the New Testament is a sequel? Matthew, Mark, and John all wrote about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And once their story is told, Jesus gives instructions to go out and tell others, and it's over. Their story ends with the expectation now that the readers will make use of what they read, even kind of what Jeff was talking about earlier. It's not just reading it, it's applying it. But Luke is different, perhaps because of his training as a doctor, He's more systematic than the others, writing like a historian, making sure he not only was accurate about what to include, but also what order to put things in. And so he begins his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then after he says that, he sets out to record the life and work of Jesus in an orderly and accurate manner. And as he comes to a close, he does something different. Because among his closing words are the instructions, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. So stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. He's saying basically, hang around for a while. We're not done yet. It's like a TV program that says, don't go away. There's more to come. To be continued, there's going to be a sequel. And there is. It's called the book of Acts. We know Acts is a sequel because he says so when he begins in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in my former book, or in my first book, Theophilus, writing to the same person, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The key word there is all that Jesus began to do and teach. That word began indicates that Acts is part two. Luke's way of saying he's going to continue now where he had left off when he was writing the gospel of Luke about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because the story of Jesus doesn't end with his resurrection. His work is not complete. So wait, because there's more to come. And the ascension 
of Jesus into heaven was not his calling it quits, but it's a transition between part one and part two. Just as they do in sequels for TV when they open with the word previously and quickly bring you up to speed by reviewing what had already happened, Luke does the same thing, giving a brief review of what he had already written in part one to prepare them for what's to come. As he continues on, after his suffering, and this is Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. So, hold on, there's more to come. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This passage is a bridge connecting the two books. Which is why when you compare Luke 24, the ending of Luke 24, with Acts chapter 1 at the beginning, you find there's a great deal of overlap and similarity between what Luke writes there with a slightly different emphasis. Both mention a period of instruction before Jesus ascends to the heavens, indicating this time of transition. In Luke 24, it brings an end to Jesus' earthly ministry, instruction his followers on the purpose and meaning of his work. In Acts chapter 1, the same thing is used in preparation for the start of the apostles' ministry and what Jesus is going to continue to do now through them. In both, Jesus provides hard evidence on his resurrection, talking with them, touching them, eating with them. In Luke, these convincing proofs of his resurrection are evidence that he conquered death, that his story isn't over because he is alive. In Acts, they become the foundation for the apostles' witness, how his story is now to continue through his people. The disciples thought his resurrection... His resurrection meant that he was going to start conquering the nations. They asked him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But his presence and work moves from his physical body to a spiritual body. Both Luke and Acts describe the ascension in order to bring the two together. In Luke, the ascension serves as a visible sign that his physical ministry has come to an end. In Acts, it marks the start of his ministry through his church. And by the way, a number of passages in the New Testament refer to Jesus now being seated at the right hand of God. These are the only two places in the New Testament where the ascension is actually described. As one commentator put it, 
The conclusion of Luke's gospel provides an introduction to the book of Acts. Jesus' final words to his disciples are a virtual summary of the main themes of the first chapters of Acts, the waiting in Jerusalem until clothed with power of the Spirit, the preaching to all the nations beginning with Jerusalem, and the fulfillment of the scriptures in the death and resurrection of the Messiah, which is the central topic of Peter's sermons in Jerusalem. Then there's the the ascension. In all the New Testament, the ascension narrative is related only in Luke and Acts. It closes the Gospel of Luke and opens the Acts of the Apostles, binding Luke's two volumes together, parts one and part two. Acts becomes the sequel to Luke. And he makes it clear that while Jesus may no longer be physically present, his story continues. His work isn't over. It didn't end with his resurrection. It continues with us. Jesus is still at work through us. Acts is a record of what Jesus is continuing to do. He's still working and teaching through his spirit in the lives of his people. That is important because his work in our life doesn't end with the resurrection either. There's more to it than just the forgiveness of our sins. It doesn't end there. It begins there. Jesus wants to continue to do a work in all of our lives. His work shifts from saving us to sending us. Jesus is now present and active in the world through his people. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. I like the way that Warren Wiersbe put it when he wrote, the former treatise or book referred to as is the Gospel of Luke, in which Luke told the story of what Jesus began to do and teach while he was on earth. Acts picks up on the account by telling what he continued to do and teach through the church on earth. The Gospel of Luke tells of Christ's ministry on earth in a physical body, while Acts tells of his ministry from heaven through his spiritual body, the church. So, for example, in 124 of Acts, the believers ask the ascended Christ to show them which man to elect as an apostle. In 247, it is the Lord who adds believers to the assembly. In 13, 1 through 3, it is Christ through his spirit who sends out the first missionary. In 1427, Paul and Barnabas relate what God did through them. All along the way, it's God working, not just the apostles. Every Christian, Wearsby said, needs to move out of Luke's gospel into Acts. Knowing about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ is enough for salvation, but not for spirit-empowered service. We must identify ourselves with him as our ascended Lord and allow him to work through us in the world. The church is not simply an organization engaged in religious work. It is a divine organism, the body of Christ on earth, through which his life and power must operate. He died for the, life, for the lost world, and we must live to bring that world to Christ. As Wisby says, we need to move out of Luke's gospel and into act, move from our salvation to a spirit-filled and empowered living. The key to understanding Acts is contained in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That one verse provides an outline for the book of Acts and its three major divisions. 
Chapters 1 through 7, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. The gospel is preached and takes Jerusalem by storm. The second section, Acts 8 through 12, the Spirit first leads Philip and then John and Peter out beyond the city gates. The gospel breaks out of Jerusalem and goes to the people of Judea and Samaria. And then beginning in chapter 13, the Spirit guides the church to set apart Paul and Barnabas and the world is never the same again. There's a story about the time when the late Henry Ford came up with a revolutionary idea for a new kind of anxious and he was engine, and he was anxious to get it into production for his cars. So he had some men draw up plans and presented them to his engineers. The engineers studied his drawings, and one by one, they all came to the same conclusion. Their visionary boss just didn't know very much about the fundamental principles of engineering. He'd have to be told gently, his dream was impossible. Well, Ford was never known for taking no for an answer, so he said, produce it anyway. They said, but it's impossible. Ford commanded, well, go ahead. Stay on the job until you succeed, no matter how much time is required. Six months, they worked on it. They struggled with drawing after drawing, design after design, nothing. He told them, keep at it. Another six months passed. Still nothing. And so at the end of that year, when Ford checked with his engineers, they told him again as a group, it's impossible. But Ford said, keep going. And they did. And now we have V8 engines as a result of it. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I wonder when they first heard this, if any of the disciples wanted to tell Jesus, that's impossible. It can't be done. Or at least, like Moses, well, not me, Lord, send someone else to do it. You ever feel that way? They weren't exactly known for their boldness. I mean, consider their track record. They reprimanded several times for slowness of understanding what he said. They're chastised for lack of faith several times. They're scolded for callousness towards others, thinking that Jesus is too busy and too important to bless some children. They're rebuked for a desire to call down fire from heaven on a town because they were insulted when the town people wouldn't listen to them. They fall asleep in the garden when he needs them most. He's arrested and needs them there and they run away. Peter denies he knows him three times. All but John were too frightened to show their face while he's hanging on the cross. They're hiding in the upper room at the same time he was rising from the dead. They're scolded for refusing to pay attention or listen to some women who had told him they had seen the risen Lord. Thomas is scolded for not believing all his friends when they said they had seen and talked with Jesus. And in the last chapter of John, after they had seen him resurrected, when left on their own, they seem to take the attitude, well, we can't do anything, so let's go back to our fishing nets would be hard to conceive of a more unlikely undertaking for such a group. Because now it's only a month and a half after Jesus had been murdered, and he says to them, go out and talk about me openly. But that was the point. It was impossible. 
Jesus gave them an undertaking to go into all the world that was so far past their abilities that there was no possible explanation they could accomplish it apart from God. He put them in a situation where they had to learn and they had to trust him, not in themselves. And his words still apply to us. The message and the Great Commission have not changed in 2,000 years. You will be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. To those who are close to you, in other words, and to those who are far away. And you know what? With closed countries and war and persecution and sectarianism and mistrust and so much more, it's still impossible. Yet we're still told to go and be his witnesses to the ends of the world. That's a critical point. It's not about us, though. It's never been about us and what we're capable of. It's not about our ability to tell people the right things or have all the answers. The gospel isn't a formula. We're simply called to bear witness to what we've seen and experienced. Why we believe. God is concerned with the state of the world and the lostness of mankind. So concerned, Scripture says, he sent his own son to die for it. And he wants people to hear about his tremendous love and sacrifice and be invited to become a part of his family. He wants that message to get out, not just through a few select people we call missionaries, but by all his people, all of us. We are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in our own backyard, among our friends and our family and our co-workers, but also in our Samaria, which may include people we don't like so much. I mean, after all, the Jews despised the Samaritans and considered them half-breeds and heretics. And it even extends to the furthest reaches of the earth. In this case, it was the Gentile world, those the Jews considered no better than animals. And the message we're told to take the nations is not, smile, God loves you, Four steps to happiness, how to overcome low self-esteem, how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's the impossible message that God cares about you so much, Jesus came and died for your sins and rose from the dead and lives eternally to set you free from the things that would bind you. People need to hear and respond, but it doesn't happen unless we, his people, bear witness. Why do we believe Why are we here this morning? And I know most of us probably have a hard time with this. We're afraid we won't know what to say, that we might say the wrong thing, that people won't want to hear it, that they won't listen, that they'll reject us. And it's so much easier for us to keep quiet, to let others do the talking. But that all says more about us and our fears and insecurity than it does about God because it's impossible for us. That what's impossible for man is very possible for God. And Jesus didn't make it a choice. He said, you will be my witnesses. He said, go and make disciples of all people. He said, just as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. Because ultimately, it's not us. We're simply passing on what God is doing. And we don't do it alone. And that's where the other part of verse 8 comes into play. Because it's not just go and bear witness, it's Wait, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when I first began following Christ, 
The church I belonged to talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. They liked Acts chapter 2, which speaks about the coming of the Spirit as evidenced in the speaking of tongues. And from that, this church taught that the primary work of the Spirit is giving spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues. That's what he's there for. When I moved to Hawaii several years later, I attended a church that talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. They liked to quote 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and taught that based on these passages, the primary work of the Spirit is seen in spiritual gifts, especially the gift of miracles and healing. Another church I visited for a short time talked about Colossians and the fruit of the Spirit, interchange in the life of believer. Another used the Gospel of John, emphasizing how the Spirit reveals truth. And in another, they acknowledged the Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, but apart from that, they largely ignored Him as if He wasn't important. The work of the Spirit is certainly multifaceted, and you see that throughout the book of Acts. It's the evidence of His presence and His working is seen in the speaking of tongues, It's seen in healing and miracles. It's seen in transforming lives and revealing truth and convicting of sin. All significant works of the Spirit. But for Luke, in the book of Acts, the primary work of the Spirit is witness. You shall receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. That, for Luke, is what the Spirit is primarily interested in. Empowering us to simply share what we've experienced in Christ. Because our witness and the work of the Spirit are not just connected, they're inseparable from each other. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples speak in tongues, which at that time were known languages, because it says plainly the people heard the apostles declaring the praises of God in their own language, and 3,000 people were saved. The Spirit comes, The witness goes out. People's lives are changed. Later, it's through the Spirit that the apostles heal a man who's crippled. The message spread, and it says people are saved. Witness goes out. And it's like that throughout the book, because his primary purpose in writing is to declare the work of Christ continues through his Spirit in his people, to bear witness, because it's not about us. It's Christ in us and through us. As Luke had said, his first book was about the work Jesus began while he physically resided on earth. Acts is about what Jesus continues to do, only now it's through his church, his people. And that's why the Spirit is so necessary, because it's impossible without him. If we could do it on our own, why would we need faith? Why would we need trust? And it's for us, the church, to make it an intention to bear witness. That's why missions, ministry, evangelism in their various form are so much a part of what we are to be doing. That's why we're sending a team to Taiwan this summer to help a church there work with their children to plant seeds for the gospel. And while we talk about it at church, for those of you who are believers, how active are you at fulfilling what Jesus said you're supposed to be doing? Being his witnesses. When was the last time you simply shared with something, someone about your faith? About God's love? 
When was the last time you simply bore ex- witness to what you've experienced and why you believe? You know, as Chris Martin said, if you remember back a few weeks when he was here, surveys consistently show that 70% of people said they would listen and they would come to a worship or Bible study if someone they knew simply invited them. Bore witness. We have Bible studies. What do you do with it? When was the last time you invited someone? We have prayer. When was the last time you prayed for someone by name that they need know Christ? We have worship and fellowship. But how often do we help enlarge the kingdom of God with worshipers? Because sharing our faith, according to Luke and Acts, is central to what the Spirit is about in our lives. You know, Acts also should end with a to-be-continued Because Jesus' work didn't end with the apostles. In a very real sense, there was a sequel, and we're it. We're writing pages of that sequel now as we continue the work that Jesus began, as he continues to work in and through us, because he's still alive, he's still at the right hand of God, calling us to bear witness. The critical issue that must be dealt with first, however, Do you have something to bear witness to? Do you personally have an experience with God's love and mercy in your own life? And so when the worship team comes up in a moment to to lead us in a hymn of invitation, it's an invitation for you if you have not yet experienced something to bear witness to about Christ. We invite you to come to be able to pray together, perhaps to open your heart to receive Christ as your Lord, your Savior, to experience new life as he promised it and as he died to make a reality when he rose from the dead. If so, we invite you to come. And I'll ask if you could all please stand and if the worship team can come. And as they come, will you join me in prayer? Our Father, as we close this time of worship together, we thank you that you are still at work. We may not see your body physically and yet your body is all around us because your word says that we are your body now. As you continue to work and teach and care for those around us through us, Father, may we be that witness to our saving God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.